Hello, everyone. This is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. Today I've got a great episode. I just actually recorded it. I just got off this call with Danielle Lasausa, who is a philosophical coach out of Portland, Oregon. She's a PhD in philosophy, and she's an amazing conversation partner. And that's exactly what we did. We had a really nice conversation about the nature of philosophical coaching and about truth and the role it plays in our lives. The reason that I reached out to her is that I have decided to start a philosophical coaching practice of my own. And in this episode, we together through dialogue clarify exactly what philosophical coaching is for us and what our own particular flavors of it are. It was an amazing conversation and it was so helpful for me to kind of talk through what I think my philosophical coaching practice could be, as well as hear from her, a person I really respect, what her practice is and why she's found it helpful for people. Um, yeah, so for the next 60 days or so until the end of January 2022, I'm going to be offering no financial obligation coaching calls. If you would like to book one of these with me, you can email me at airyintheair at gmail.com or you can check out my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash airyintheair where I would encourage you to support this show. It's totally listener supported. And you can sign up for a 75-minute philosophic coaching call with myself. And listening to this episode, I think that it will become very clear what exactly that means and what it looks like. So I appreciate the support. Share this show. Become a patron. That all helps. And I also really appreciate Danielle's time here today. And the quality of dialogue that we had is inspiring and exactly why I have this podcast and why I love it so much. So without further ado, here's a little bit of music and my conversation with Danielle Lasaus.
Okay, Danielle, thanks for being here with me today. Of course, happy to be here. Okay, so I think that we'll start with philosophical coaching, which is how I found you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to hear kind of how you describe that practice. Philosophical coaching is uh, interesting to me because I've decided to start my own philosophical coaching practice. And um, and so I'd love to hear from you what you think philosophical coaching is and why culturally it's relevant right now in relationship to therapy and to healing and to um, kind of our current cultural crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess there are two ways for me into this conversation, um, but I think I'll take the, I'll answer your second question first. Um, I think right now, you know, the mental health industry is overloaded mm-hmm. since the start of the pandemic. You know, I have a lot of friends who are therapists and all of them have wait lists, 20 people long. And, you know, people are needing a lot of help right now. Um, but it's also the case that not everybody wants to talk to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are good reasons for that. I think, you know, some people don't like the kind of medicalization of, uh, their mental life. And, Mm. you know, we even talk about in terms of mental health, it's a medical term, mental illness. And that's actually a fairly new way of thinking about our inner lives. Um, you know, for, for many, many years, actually, if you were having some sort of personal problem or, um, didn't know what to do, or were feeling bad, you wouldn't, talk to a doctor, you would talk to a priest or mm-hmm. uh, a philosopher, actually. Back in, in ancient Greece and Athens, philosophers were kind of um, counselors of sorts. Mm-hmm. And so my practice as a philosophical coach is actually kind of um, bringing back philosophy's original uh, role in society. Mm-hmm. You know, when, as, as the academy developed and then philosophy was sort of the catch-all um, discipline. It was like mathematics, literature, psychology, none of these were separate disciplines. They were all just called philosophy. And so anytime you thought about yourself or the world or your relationship between them, you were practicing philosophy. And as you know, the Academy developed and all these things got parceled off and then, um, psychology started as its own discipline and Freud came around and suddenly it, it had branched off and philosophy is just sort of left going like, well, we used to be important. I'm not really sure like what it is we do now. And I remember being in graduate school and having kind of a crisis of, um, of discipline. Like what is it that philosophers actually do that other disciplines don't do? Um, but I think the answer to that question is that we, the reason that philosophy is, is actually a great foundation for counseling or coaching is that philosophers ask some of the most basic fundamental questions about the world and being alive in it. And there's a whole body of literature that is millennia deep that is full of people trying to answer questions about what is the good life? What is true? What should you do? 
Who are you? How do you know? And these are all the like foundational questions of being alive and philosophers have been trying to answer these questions for years and years. And actually the foundations of psychology and psychotherapy were all philosophers. You know, you can go back to Plato and Aristotle. They all have theories of the human psyche and the soul. And um, so, yeah, so I'm just sort of um, taking my knowledge and my training in philosophy. I have a PhD in philosophy and I use that training to um, in, try and inhabit other people's worldviews, to ask them questions. It's a lot of, um, you know, Socrates was known for, he called it um, midwifery, Socratic midwifery, which was having dialogue with someone and asking them a bunch of questions about what it is they really care about, what it is they really believe, um, and not giving answers, but merely trying to elicit clarity and elicit um, questions from this person so that they can come to their own conclusions about what's important to them, what their identity is, what they care about, what they should do and how they should act in the world. And that's sort of my role with my clients. Mm. I love this idea that the, the midwifery, that you would midwife through dialogue, insight and wisdom mm -hmm. that people have latent in themselves. Yes. So my friend, Andrew Taggart is a philosophical coach mm -hmm. and kind of the inspiration. Um, he's kind of like the OG inspiration for me in this practice. He wrote a book that I've read called the art of inquiry. And it seems like philosophical coaching is or could be called the art of inquiry. And it's almost the therapeutic or healing or encouraging or challenging art of inquiry. So I'd love to hear from you what role inquiry has in your practice and kind of either like what that looks like or why that's helpful for people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like I said, this midwifery process is trying to, I like the way you put it, get, ha help people come to the answers that perhaps they already know that's mm -hmm. latent inside them. Um, and so, you know, asking good questions is, is a skill. It's mm -hmm. not always easy to do to ask good questions. Um, and so, for me, like the, when I have a new client, my goal is to try and figure out like, what is the central story that this person is telling themselves about who they are and what their role in the world is. And so, especially early on, my questions are, are about like, you know, sometimes I'll even ask that question, like, what is the story you're telling yourself about this? You know, um, when they kind of articulate with the, you know, main obstacles are for them or their, you know, troubled past experiences or difficult relationships. There's some kind of, I find like underlying narrative that kind of uh, keeps people stuck in a certain way of relating to their own experiences. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those narratives, if they are stuck, are narratives of like, you know, I'm a failure or I can't handle this, or I'm not good enough, or, you know, some sort of like deep, um, 
story that they just sort of reinforce to themselves over and over and over again. And so if we can like articulate what that story is, and then the questions become, well, how's that working out for you? You know, what was the impact of that story in your life? How is it informing the way you show up and the way you relate to people and what you do and don't do in your life? And what would your life be like if you didn't have this story, if you had a different story? And what, what different story could you, could you have? And what would the impact of that story be? And how would you show up in the world if you had that other story? And so those are the, the kind of fundamental kinds of questions that, that I ask. And, um, and sometimes you have to go out of your way to get there or meet people where they, where they are. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it's, it's really saying, what is it that you, what's sort of your core belief or your core narrative? And then how is that impacting you? And what can you imagine differently in the future? And what would that look like? Hmm. I think that paints a pretty good picture. And I would just love to hear you kind of shave off the edges where it diff, where it really differs from therapy and what you see as the current culture of therapy, particularly in America in 2021? Yeah, I mean, I there's certainly, you know, some overlap. Um, I think really for me, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not trained as a therapist. I've been, mm-hmm. I, I've been to therapy myself and I find it, you know, I found it to be very help, very helpful in some cases. Mm-hmm. But one thing about it that never quite feels totally comfortable is that, and, you know, part of this, I think is not necessarily, or not only the training, but also the insurance (laughs) industrial complex that goes along with therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, part of what therapists have to do in those early sessions is figure out what is this person's diagnosis? Mm -hmm. How are we going to diagnose this person? And what is the treatment for that diagnosis? And I don't think about that at all. And mm-hmm. I think that's really liberating because um, one, you know, some people like a diagnosis, they find it to be grounding, but I always found it to be really, I don't know, li- limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like the DSM, the, what is it? The um, mm-hmm. manual of, of, of mental, what, I don't even remember what, what it stands for, but the, the Bible of uh, psych- psychologists and psychotherapists yeah. where they have to diagnose um, the diagnostic manual. Um, and it's full of like, you know, just these really, in my opinion, bizarre diagnoses, mm-hmm. like transition disorder. Yeah. Like if you are having trouble making a transition in your yeah. life, you can be mm-hmm. diagnosed with the disorder, even though like, in my opinion, transition sort of hard for everybody. Um, (laughs) Or like obstinance and defiance disorder or attention deficit disorder. Uh Yeah. And these are all just sort of like descriptions of a certain number of like symptom, quote unquote, symptoms or experiences. Very human experiences. Exactly. Very human experiences that, that, you know, depending on the context may be applied or not applied to different people, right? Like if you are, um, you know, required to do, to function in the world in a certain way and, you know, a transition and the normal kind of human experience of like 
getting through a difficult transition doesn't work with like, you know, if you've got two kids and you got to go to work full time and you have to do this and you have to do that, Mm -hmm. you know, any kind of bumpiness along the way is just not, there's no room for it. And Mm -hmm. so then suddenly it feels like there's something wrong if Mm -hmm. you don't have that Mm -hmm. um, smooth transition. And then, you know, oh, well now we've got a name to give you a diagnosis for that wrong feeling. Yeah. I feel like you're describing exactly why people have an aversion to making their mental health, air quotes, mental health, a medical issue and use some kind of trained doctor, therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist to treat them. Um, Because like I pointed out, I think that most of these things, obstinance, defiance disorder, transition disorder, attention deficit disorder are very real, normal, common human experiences. And to call it a disorder is to literally label it as a disorder, as opposed to a normal human experience and often a symptom of some other underlying ecology of their life, their energy, their family, their situation, their psyche as a response to their environment, their wounds. So yes, I think that something that I'm kind of feeling into here is, you know, this cultural, the, the cultural implications of therapy being medical Mm-hmm. And something I recognized years ago in my life was that I really wanted to have less relationships that were draining on me and more relationships that were um, rejuvenating and therapeutic. And so I was, I have literally been looking for relationships that are therapeutic. As we're kind of describing philosophical coaching, mm-hmm. I think of it as a i think of it as a really good deep friendship of virtue mm. where a person would listen empathically and use a very healthy and mature form of dialogue and inquiry to suss out and allow to emerge wisdom that clarifies what the shape of a person's life is and what they should do with it. I think that's a great summary of the, Mm. of the practice. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that part of it too, you know, that you, that you said earlier that I want to emphasize is for me, like there is there is a, an orientation toward depathologizing human mm. experiences, right? I think that like anytime we feel sad or scared or angry, we tend to, as a culture say, like these things are not somehow not good, not healthy, not mm-hmm. productive. And so we need to classify them and, and somehow solve the problem. And I think, you know, some amount of grief, perhaps even given the world that we live in, there's a whole lot of things to feel grief about right now. Mm -hmm. And that it, it seems to me to be an appropriate response to Mm -hmm. the situation to feel sad. Right. That, That said, I also think that these sorts of things operate on a, on a spectrum. 
right? And um, and sometimes, you know, there is a more extreme sense of like feeling unable to cope or unable to um, kind of live in the world, which is a, as I said, like it's a it's a difficult world in a lot of ways to mm-hmm. live in. And I love um, this book by uh, Johan Hari called Lost Connections. He actually talks about how the mm. sort of depression and anxiety and the sources of depression and anxiety are not necessarily a you know quote unquote chemical imbalance in the brain, which was always the explanation he received. But in fact, that the chemical imbalance was the um, was the symptom and not the cause, right? Yes. And that the real cause is, is a lack of connection with other people, with yes. the natural world, with meaningful work, with mm-hmm. good values, with a sense of community, right? All of these things that we humans crave that our society does not provide to us, which, which results in a kind of dis-ease, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and so that that is a now we have all of these like ways of like carving up these diseases Mm -hmm. right and putting names and putting labels on them and then giving the appropriate pharmaceutical medication oftentimes and you know in some cases that works you know like if you if you live in this culture and you want to be able to flourish in it you need maybe to take add medication so you can focus on your job and earn your paycheck and go you know take care of your kids and whatever right that is the world that we live in but Sometimes I think what people need is simply to be told that they are having an, an appropriate <laughs> response mm-hmm. or, or an understandable response mm-hmm. at the very least to the world that we live in and that these emotions and these thoughts we can take seriously and we mm-hmm. can um, not dismiss as simply disordered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a couple of things that come up for me there. One, the you mentioning Johan Hari, I just heard him summarized, one of his arguments summarized as the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that also brings up Gabor Mate and addiction as a response to something that's lacking, trauma, wounds, mm-hmm. um, all, uh, bereavement, all kinds of things. Um, and I think that's an insightful look. And and the other thing that comes up is I also want to stand up for therapy and therapists here because my experience has been that most of the therapists that I know personally and the therapists that I've worked with that have been my therapists are radically validating of my human experience and don't need to label me with a disorder. The only time that's ever come up in my conversations with my therapist is literally, like you said, it's around insurance. Yes. Okay. Ari, like, how do you want to be diagnosed here, bud? (laughs) We're going to need to, we're going to need to tell them something. Wow. What do you want to tell them? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I agree, you know, most therapists I know, you know, say that this, the system that they need to operate in and, you know, bill insurance by, they think is, is not ideal Yes, at the very least. So the, the delineation here that I want to suss out with you is there's a difference between therapy and philosophical coaching because as I 
think of it in my mind, therapy is the term that comes up is like unconditional positive regard. Mm. It is very validating mm. of all of our feelings and our thoughts. And philosophy is a sharp, sharp sword. Yes, can be. It can be a very sharp sword. And um, and so there is, you know, with therapy, I think it's it's very important sometimes for people's experience to just be validated, for their response emotionally to just be validated. Mm-hmm. And I think that good, as I think of my own philosophical coaching practice, I think of one of the huge components of it is just good empathic listening that I can listen properly and I can reflect back to the person what I hear. And I can also hold the thread. I'm so good at that. I'm just like, I have a natural propensity to hold threads and tie shit together over hours and hours and years and years of relationship. That's one of my superpowers. So but there's also like this really kind of masculine part of me that is very challenging. And also I'm happy to make qualitative judgments. I don't think that everything is equal. I don't think that all thoughts are equal, that all ideologies are equal. I don't think that all people are equal. And, you know, in, in a certain sense, right. Um, I don't think that like every partner is equally as good of a choice for everyone or for any one person, you know? So there are these like qualitative differences that I'm happy to face. Mm. And I think that one of the biggest benefits of philosophical coaching is the sharp swordness of philosophy. Mm. Um, Obviously humanity and, um, swordsmanship and restraint, discernment, all of these, and like wisdom, all of these things are so important, but philosophy is a sharp sword and therapy is a soft room. Mm. That's kind Mm. of how I think about it. And I'm wondering if you've, if what you think of that, how you consider it, what, what role does challenge have in your practice? That's such an interesting question. Uh, because I think that philosophy has for a long time as a discipline been dominated by men, particularly white men. And I think um, in part because of that, it does have this sharp sword quality to it. And believe me, I have seen this come out in a conference panels and lectures where people think that it is their duty to cut other people down in front of their peers Mm. um, as, as uh, I don't know, intellectual sparring matches or something. Mm. Um, But I think that that doesn't have to be the case with philosophy. I do think that there is a sharpness about it, but I guess I think of the sharpness more as a scalpel than a sword. And Mm. And the sharpness is Mm -hmm. a kind of really being discerning about articulating the differences between things about, you know, following a conclusion or a a premise to its, its conclusion about pointing out when things are in contradiction. So there is a challenging 
can be a challenging quality there, but I don't think that's at the forefront for me. The sharpness comes from the two of us working together to really try and get to the clear truth of the matter. Okay. That, that, that's a nice reflection. And I, there's something that I want to bookmark, which is that what I heard was that philosophy is dominated by white men and that's what makes it a sword. Uh, or gives it the sword quality, which I want to bookmark mm. for a second because I sure. kind of just generally disagree with that. And the reason I disagree with that is because, and this is this is you what you just shared kind of clarified this for me. I don't actually think that philosophy is the sword. Mm. Truth is the sword. Mm. Truth is the sword. Um philosophy and i love your delineation of scalpel versus sword because sword is a weapon and a scalpel is a tool mm -hmm. i love this and i have actually used both of these analogies like truth or my like my my insight using it as both a a, a, a scalpel or a sword i love this analogy um scalpels are typically used in some form as healing it's a it's a tool for healing. Mm -hmm. Something might need to be cut away from this. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about people's stories and how they see themselves in the world, mm -hmm. sometimes we have these big malignant mm -hmm. growths on mm -hmm. our stories. Yes. And sometimes the best fucking thing we can do is just cut that part of the story right out. Mm-hmm. What would your life look like if that part of the story was gone and it healed over, even with a scar? What would it be like to walk around without that growth on there? Um, I also like the idea of a sword because sometimes there's just like one untruth that comes up, one big story. And I've heard myself ask permission, hey, are you ready for me to cut this one in half? Like, I just like, I'm ready. I like, I've got this one. Like, I'm ready for this pep talk. I'm ready to fucking slice this one. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think the distinction there that I wanted to like kind of back up and make to my argument there was that it's actually not philosophy that is sharp. The truth is sharp. Mm. And making qualitative judgments is sharp. Hmm. And so I think culturally, what I have seen is that we have this narrative that goes around that everyone is equal and everything is equal and all cultures are equal. And I just generally disagree. Mm. And I think that there are ways to identify in our cultures, in our lives, in ourselves, in our bodies, that some things are better, truer, more real than others. Well, you have led us down a very thorny uh, path to relativism, <laughs> relativism or absolutism. Yes. And um, yeah, I mean, I tend... I personally tend to be more of a relativist, actually. Um, I think that um, I think that my my sort of view of the world is that we all, like when you said the qualitative judgments are, you related them to truth, 
I'm actually not convinced that those two things are aligned. Mm. I think that you have your version of the truth and your qualitative judgments reflect what you believe to be important or true or good in this world. And you can share that with people and they can choose to accept that or reject it. Mm -hmm. But I think it can be dangerous when people claim um, to have a monopoly on the truth Mm -hmm. um, or even claim to have, uh, yeah, like access to it in Mm -hmm. some ways, right? Because how do you know? I, I think that, you know, there is a theory um, that is not just like everybody's, you know, because it can be it can be dangerous to say that, like, it's all equal or, you know, the earth is flat, the earth is round, whatever. They're both equally true. Like, that's clearly absurd. Right. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is a theory that we can um, sort of help ground us. And this is getting to my philosophical training um, known as standpoint epistemology. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that look, we all have experiences and our lived experiences give rise to certain wisdom, right? To certain knowledge and understanding that we have of the world because of who we are and what we do, how we engage with the world and and what the world sort of um, presses upon us. And that each person's perspective is important and that when you're in systems of power, the people who are often... um, oppressed in that system of power will frequently have a more complete picture and perhaps a more accurate picture of the way that the system operates than the people at the top. Mm. Right. So for example, um, factory owner, factory worker, the factory makes widgets. The factory worker actually has a better understanding of how the widgets are made and how it relates to the other parts of the system than the factory mm-hmm. owner does. The factory owner says like, make the widgets, make sure it goes right itself. And the factory worker may not have the, you know, there may be some things invisible to them, but there's also things invisible to the factory owner, namely, mm-hmm. you know, how to make the widgets and the experience of working in the factory and what's important, which is why it's important, for example, for bosses to ask their employees, like, what is your actual experience like? Mm-hmm. Right. But when we have these top down systems of power, we just ignore the people at the bottom. And so my sense of like, maybe all that's to say when people say I have access to the truth, it's because we have this history in our culture of the people who claim that they have access to the truth are the people who have money and resources and white skin and male bodies and historically, those are the people who claim to have access to the truth and everyone else is just Mm. mistaken or Mm. unimportant. So Mm. I tend to be much more of a relativist because I say like, well, there's a lot of things that this truth that I grew up believing missed, Mm. did not have access to, did not take into account. And this dominant version of the truth doesn't actually reflect my experience. Mm. Right. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So I tend to be more of a relativist, perhaps for that reason. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's, I, I think that um, I, I mostly agree with you here. You threw in white skin there. And I just kind of disagree with that because like China and India, and um, there's just so much of what you just described. That's not white skin. So that I, I just think I have kind of a, 
allergy to that particular sprinkle of guilt or racism around that. Um, but I think we'll get back to that. Um, what you just shared kind of helps me clarify my argument even further there. And I think that in and it's around what is true. Mm-hmm. And I, I really agree with you and I appreciate your, um, your distinction here because the idea that someone or some institution could know what is absolutely true is not how I think of it. So our culture as it relates to truth is essentially that right now we have this, um, a large portion of our population thinks that truth only correlates to material manifest material reality, physical reality, science, right? Mm. And everyone agrees that with science, we can know what is true. And I think that there is a incredible sharpness to the truth that comes from science, right? Like, the boiling point of water is a very sharp, knowable, mm-hmm. like it's sharp. Yeah, That's the, the truth in science is sharp. There's a sharpness to that. It cuts away untruth, but it is not the only way to know truth. And that is an objective reality type of truth. The other almost sickness that we have in relation to truth, as I discern it, is that everyone's own truth is reality. And that's to kind of muddle those two things. Now, there mm-hmm. is like an objective reality, mm-hmm. as I would describe it. And there is your lived experience and your subjective experience. And our subjective experience of truth is also incredibly sharp. So when we're... Uh, how I would describe this is when I imagine you working with one of your clients, there are times where people just have a latent truth inside of them that is so sharp that they keep it hidden away from themselves because they know if they pull out that sword, it's going to cut out a relationship. It's going to cut out a job. It's going to cut off a part of their family. It's going to cut off some of their habits that they use as coping mechanisms. It's going to, there's some Mm. consequence to the sharpness of their own subjective truth that they withhold. Mm -hmm. Right. So the sharpness of the truth in science, the sharpness of the truth in subjective reality and the sharpness of how would I say this? So like there's a, the qualitative judgments are not merely objective, but they're also subjective because I have, my body has a pretty binary yes or no good or bad truth or falsehood judgment system. It lives in my solar plexus. It lives in my heart. It lives in my breath. It lives in literally how strong my muscles are. 
um, which kind of gets us into like some kind of kinesiology, David R. Hawkins thing, which I kind of love, but I also like put it into a woo woo, like don't rely on that part of what I believe mm. part of my head. Um, but so this, you describe yourself as a relativist and I, I kind of like understand that as you're also like a PhD in philosophy and you know the sharpness of philosophy and you're also a coach. So you must know the sharpness of people's subjective experience. And like, there is a difference between truth and falsehood. There just like is, there is in science, there is in philosophy and there is in our lives. Mm. And so this is kind of like the implement. This is the, where you're helping me understand and reiterate my argument for why philosophy is a scalpel that can be used for healing in a coaching setting. Yeah. So that's, that's helpful. I mean, as you talked about people's different ways of understanding what's true for them, right. And these different methods that we use. I mean, the thing is that when clients come for coaching, they don't come with questions like what is the boiling point of water? <laughs> right. They're questions like, what should I do with my life? Yes. Or, you know, how do I feel better about taking up space in the world? Mm -hmm. Right. Or should I quit my job and get a new one? Right. Like these are questions that do not have like a, an um, empirical answer. You can't like look under a rock to find the answer. There's no science experiment that you can do to come up with the correct data here, right? Um, or the correct conclusion. And so, so many of the questions that we humans struggle with are questions about values. What should I do or what should I value or what is good or what is you know, the best way forward? These are all value judgments and there's no scientific method for that. So the only thing that we can do to decide or figure that out is, as you say, these alternative ways of asking people what is true for them. And so for me, I actually do, um, you know, some of that is this kind of philosophical, you know, midwifery of like, well, what does this thing actually mean to you? And what is important? What is good? Right. And talking but a lot of times I'll ask my clients if they don't know quite what to do in a certain situation, I'll say, okay, well, take a minute, close your eyes, feel your body, feel the sensations of your body. What does your body say you should do? Right. And I usually get one of two answers. One is I don't know how to feel my body. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is a certain kind of skill that people, mm -hmm. some people haven't learned. And the other is, a clear as a bell answer. Yes. Right. Almost always when people can do it and they can actually ask their body, there is an answer that comes to the surface almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And it is almost always crystal clear. Mm -hmm. Right. And where that comes from, I don't know. You know, I, I'm there. I'm sure there are lots of different um, kinds of explanations that we could give for why those answers are so crystal clear. Um, but when I really, and part of it is like, is laying the groundwork so that any answer that comes up can feel safe. 
right? And that's your question of like, people may have something inside of them that they know that they feel, but they are afraid to say it because of the consequences that may come after Mm -hmm. the fact, right? So part of the work that I do with clients is being able to create an environment in which they can actually both listen to what their body has to say and have the courage to speak it, Mm -hmm. right? And know that speaking it may then come with this, like, well, now I got to do something about that. And so you want them to be able to hold that, sit with it, see a path forward. If they're, you know, if that truth does require some change in their lives. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so much of, of really the relationship is, is building that safe space, that safe container for people to actually get in touch with what that latent you know, truth or value or thing inside of them is. Mm. I love and have made this, um, I've drawn this picture a lot lately, this relationship between sensitivity, developing a sensitivity to be able to tease out the signal from the noise of your body, Mm -hmm. of your emotions, of your thoughts, of your reason, your logic, and the courage to enact it. I think that so many of us have traumatic experiencing tra- traumatic experiences mishandling the sword of our own truth um, or listening to certain signals, you know, like s- often, the signal that my body says when I'm in emotional turmoil is run, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and, and like you say, it's often just crystal clear, but it's not always the signal that I go with, mm-hmm. but being able to, to discern it, to know that it's saying run and to like, let it have a seat at the table is really important. So, I'm wondering, is your coaching practice, does it have an element of like sparring, Mm. of fencing, where people would be able to kind of guard themselves from the mistakes of swinging their sword around and allow, because what you said about people not learning to listen to the sensitive and subtle signals of their body, I think that's not something that, or it's something that not only do we not learn that we're not taught, that's like beaten out of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That is beaten out of us. And um, I had a very incredible conversation with this woman, Skylar Brown. She's an embodiment coach. Mm-hmm. And we kind of in conversation realized that disembodiment, like not being able to hear the signals of your body is the only way that we can destroy our ecology. Like we have to dis, we have to dissociate from ourselves to treat the earth as we do. I absolutely agree. Okay. So, so, and we also, there's people and myself included that I've had traumatic experiences, either like allowing the sort of my truth to swing around and cut things out. And it's like, it's hard. It's like, it's something I have to grieve. 
and also like mishandling it where I like spoke so strong or I listened to the signal too quickly or something. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, is there a part of your practice that's kind of like getting more comfortable with these really sharp, subjective, objective value judgment truths? Yeah, I mean, I think so. But, you know, you asked the question, like, is there sparring? And I think that sometimes there is, but that's not my goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes the sparring and, you know, I'm sorry to um, to make a generalization here, but I found it largely to be true. The, the sparring energy that I often see and the, the actual kind of uh, conversation that feels most like sparring tends to be with a particular kind of uh, young male client who sees mm-hmm. philosophy as intellectual sparring. And, mm-hmm. um, and there is a kind of fun in doing it. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, it's part of why I got my degree. There is a kind of like, you know, um, energy and fun and intellectual, um, pleasure mm-hmm. that comes from having these conversations. And I'm happy to do that. But I think that it's often not super helpful mm-hmm. um, when it comes to changing your life. <laughs> I totally agree. I right? totally agree. I've experienced this in myself, actually, in my closest relationship with my closest male friends, who I actually really like desire their approval and affection and support. And mm-hmm. to have the sparring energy in any given time is to like put a facade on myself. It's like yes. to put a mask on and pretend that I don't actually like that. What I'm doing isn't, am I doing it right? Do you love me? Mm, and yeah. it's to, it is to, so this is the, 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 the classic distinction that I, that I make here is the difference between debate and dialogue. Yes. Debate is me trying to get you to see my way. And dialogue is where you and I work together to actually discern what is true. Right. Not me trying to tell you what is true. It's us working together to find what is true. So I think that philosophy, if it looks like debate is not philosophy. Mm. Dialogue is philosophy. And the difference in our perspectives is often incredibly enlightening and um, insightful but to like stick to what it is and really like debate to like really in an entrenched way, hold your position is actually not what I think of as philosophy. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I do think that sometimes that's in the, you know, academic circles, that's the way it shows Mm -hmm. up. Right. I've been to plenty of conferences in which people assume that philosophy is about debate. Um, But I agree that if it's going to be useful, Mm -hmm. if it's going to actually transform, Uh then it can't, be that if yeah. that's that's like a fun party hat game right uh-huh. like and so when i feel that energy from clients um sometimes they really want me to to meet them there and i can um but a lot of times it's like well what is what's underneath this like what are uh-huh. you avoiding yes. by having this kind of like intellectual sparring debate with uh-huh. me it's actually because there's probably some feelings happening that yeah. you don't want to feel yes vulnerability yes and that has been, um, 
it's, you know, sometimes as a coach and as a philosopher, I have to kind of catch myself because I'm used to just doing this, you know, I was trained to do the sparring and I can, like I said, it's fun and it's easy, but there are, you know, when I feel it start to happen, I think like, what's the real issue here? Uh Will this be helpful to this person? Right. And sometimes, so here's a case in which I had a client once who she was a young woman, gosh, she was like in early twenties and was really, um, she had this very strong narrative that nobody liked her. Mm. Right. And that people just like anyone in her life didn't respect her, thought that she was just like unworthy in some ways. Mm. And so part of, you know, in that case, we did a little bit of like philosophical, like thought experiments where I said, okay, well, how, how do you know this? Mm-hmm. Like, but do you have access to other people's minds? Like, and if you were to take a poll, like what would that give you the truth? And, you know, um, you know, we kind of did this more classic philosophical, like what is the nature of truth and how mm-hmm. do we get access to yes. it kind of questions, but it was all in service to her feeling like this is absolutely true. I know yes. it's true. And it's like, well, do you, is it true? Know? Yeah. How is it true? How do you know know it's true? Right. Yes. And so that, you know, there are different ways in, right? One thing is to kind of have that, that more philosophical conversation. How do you know it's true? And the other is to acknowledge, be with, sit with the vulnerable feeling of shame that that person is experiencing. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think in my practice, I try and do both of those things. Because sometimes people feel, you know, and, and it depends on the client and where they are. Sometimes just sitting with the shame is too, too overwhelming, mm-hmm. right? And, or feeling it in the body, they, they don't have the, the practice in doing mm-hmm. that. And so sometimes it's like earning their trust through mm-hmm. the intellectual thought experiments to then finally come back and get to the root of the emotional issue mm-hmm. there. Yeah. A couple things come up for me there. It's just like one is that I I kind of think of philosophical coaching as a bit more intellectually rigorous, and this is one of the distinctions that Pamela Hobart makes between therapy and philosophical coaching is that it's more intellectually rigorous. Like we kind of have to do the hard work of is that really true? How do we know that's true? Could we write a proof? to show some, to prove to someone else that no one likes us. Um, and I think that's great. And another thing that you said that again is so clarifying for my, how I see this is the idea that the sparring, the intellectual sparring is, I, I said that I don't think of that as philosophy, but I actually do think of that as philosophy. I think that has a very valid place, especially in, academia, especially in like um, developing our ideas, you know, cause sometimes we got to like try it on, like put this suit on and put it in the ring and like fight this other suit that you're, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes your best friend, like he's going to put that suit on and you go into the ring and you fight it. And mm-hmm. then you come out and you're like, okay, was, was, how was that suit? Like, how did it feel to be in it? Like, did it yeah. work? Did it yeah. hold up to the arguments? So I think that's very helpful. But the distinction that I have is that that is, I, I can't really think of any time in my life that that has been therapeutic. 
Uh huh. Right. So it can be helpful for me to build myself. Iron sharpens iron. It can be a way for me to clarify my arguments, to have them cut in half. It can be a way for me to try to garner the approval of others. But I have found in my own life that my window into healing is through vulnerability and not through guardedness of even my premises. Yes, because, and I, I love that you said that because the thing is we can do the work of like, you know, I'm going to defend this way of looking at the world. Right. And it's, Mm. it's helpful to have that sparring partner to sharpen our edges and make sure that we know, Mm -hmm. you know, that our argument is strong and that's helpful in certain ways. But the truth is, and I love the way you just said it, even my premises, like, I don't know if I actually believe what I say, right? Like, uh, you know, I had a podcast of my own for a while and uh, my co-host and I, Jose, I remember one time he asked me like, do you, you know, do you believe in free will or are you a determinist? And I, and I, I said to him the truth of the matter as I saw it, you know, cause I was like, well, I feel like I'm really a determinist, but I act like there's free will, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes. And then I said, you know, the truth is I have no idea. I just sort of like go with what is uh, useful to me Mm -hmm. at the time, right? And this is the thing, we do this all the time. Our views of the world and of ourselves shift and change and we may not actually be able to defend them at all. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they're contradictory. Sometimes they're irrational. Some, you know, a lot of times they stand on absolutely no foundation whatsoever, except our own gut impulses. And to say that we're going to build this big, you know, rational argument with premises and conclusions to defend them. I think there's actually a kind of dishonesty at the heart of it Mm -hmm. sometimes. Right. And so maybe that's part of the reason that it's not ultimately therapeutic because in the end, we are clueless. We have no idea what the hell we're doing. And we are just trying to move through the world in a way that feels good mm-hmm. and that makes us you know, feel most alive. And in order to do that, we have to be willing to admit that we don't know. We have to be willing to pay attention to ourselves, to our bodies, to our environments, to really um, be comfortable with the uncertainty of our futures and of our desires and of our identities. There's so much uncertainty and so much irrational, uh, like to the experience of being, there's Mm -hmm. so much rationality to it. And so I think part of it is like, even though philosophy can be helpful and we can say like, well, if you're, you know, trying to figure out what to do or what the right thing is, here's three different you know, approaches to ethics and here are the three different systems and which one of these feels good and right to you and go ahead and follow and, you know, whatever, but like, or to, to spar and challenge people, but ultimately we have to have the courage to admit that we do not know, which of course is what Socrates said way Mm -hmm. back when he was considered the wisest man in Athens because he was able to admit how much he did not know. Mm -hmm. Mm. I love that. And I, experientially, I just know that to be so true. My own 
vulnerability, my own unknowingness, my own ability to ask for help, to sit in my confusion, to acknowledge my confusion, that has all been so powerful. That's really like when my life started changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I have to say, like, I think that is the part of my philosophy training that is most valuable to mm-hmm. my practice, mm-hmm. right? Because I taught intro philosophy classes to students year after year, and they come in with very clear beliefs a lot of times, and they Mm -hmm. leave going, I feel so much more confused than when I got in here. (laughs) And my, you know, refrain to them all semester long is, you don't really know the answers, but you become more comfortable with not knowing them, right? Because, you know, they come in like, does God exist? I don't know. I thought he did, but now I'm not sure. And what do you think, teacher? And I'm like, well, I don't really know either. (laughs) And they're like, well, how can you live? I'm like, well, you just become more comfortable not knowing. Right. And I think that actually is the, is the real foundation for my practice is just, I feel much more comfortable actually not really knowing what the answers are and having some sense of what I think, but not being too attached to them because I know how many other arguments there are for Mm -hmm. other worldviews and I've studied them and I've picked them apart. And I've, you know, even my own view, I've, I've read the counter arguments for, so I'm not too attached to any one thing. And I think that that kind of openness and ability to try on other people's perspectives and to see the, the value in them and to say that we're not going to be too dogmatic about any of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've kind of grown up in a world where like certainty feigned, feigning certainty is kind of the, is like has been touted as kind of the only way to go in our relationships, in our governance, in our parenting, in our teaching, it's all kind of predicated on this feigned authority of certainty. And the comfort in not knowing as a gateway to wisdom, Mm. as a gateway to our own wisdom and our own life, Really, it's like the mystery of being. Yes. Yes. It's such a gateway. Vulnerability is such a gateway. Asking for help, knowing that you need help um, is really, I don't know, it, it sound, it, like the fact that it's a gateway or the, the sense that that's a gateway, that's the starting point. And that's like where you actually have to stay all of the time in this this not knowing. And it brings up for me the Andrew Taggart in The Art of Inquiry. He lists three requisite characteristics of a person who wants to inquire. Okay. And I think they're so helpful. The first one is interestedness. I'm not sure why he writes it like that and not just interest. Because this, the person who is ready to deeply inquire has to be genuinely interested in the shape of their life. Mm-hmm. 
And there's also a healthy disconnect between what they're going to find and what it means about them versus what they're going to find and what it means about human experience, about experience, about the universe, right? Mm -hmm. Interest. The second is persistence, Mm. that to ask a serious question and to stay with it Mm-hmm. takes persistence because mm-hmm. all kinds of things are going to bubble up, all kinds of stories, all kinds of uh, feelings, all kinds of thoughts. And to stay with the inquiry takes persistence. And then the third is receptivity mm-hmm. that I just got goosebumps about to say it. The idea that the wisdom that you would find latent in yourself would demand action Mm. in your life. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. It's interesting. I mean, I think when you said persistence, actually the word that came to my mind was courage. Uh Mm. I think this work takes courage. It does. Right. Because the reason that we don't stay with a question is because those, um, those emotions, Mm -hmm. it's scary. It's Mm -hmm. scary. Yes. Right. Um, and sometimes, you know, people deal with really serious stuff. Sometimes there's trauma. Sometimes there's, you know, intense fear that comes to the surface when they start digging around. Um, and I think to even tread there takes incredible courage mm-hmm. and to stay with it and to, to have enough wisdom to know when you need to rest Mm-hmm. and to recuperate and have comfort and safety, but then to try again, mm-hmm. if you need to, um, it takes incredible courage. Mm-hmm. And not only because you may be dealing with parts of your experiences or your past that are very difficult, but also because they may call you to certain action mm-hmm. that you may not feel ready to do. And um, Yeah, I just think that courage is such an important virtue. I love this. I love this. It's a cardinal virtue. And there was a there's a a very smart friend of mine. His name is Richard Bartlett. And he told me that there is this way in which we are able to endow people with courage. Mm. He calls it encouragement. (laughs) And so I guess I think that this is a beautiful uh, way to kind of close this conversation to ask you what role encouragement has in your Mm. practice. Oh, that's such a good question. So much. I mean, it really Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, coaching is a different, I I really toggled back and forth between what to call myself when I first started this practice. Mm Right. Um, was I going to be a counselor or a, a coach? And um, and I decided on coach in part. Well, I started by just saying coach because I really wanted to be very clear about my credentials. Right. I'm not a therapist. I, I don't have a, um, a license in that. But I also think that coach feels appropriate to me because coaching is often associated with this idea of like imagining a new future for yourself and working your way towards it. And I think so much of what people need is simply permission to believe in that future for themselves, that it's possible, 
mm. for them that they could have a different story mm. that they could have a different way of responding to the things that happen in their lives that may lead them to take different action in the future and build a life closer to the one that they want for themselves and so much of the of the work is simply saying can you imagine that that's possible for you why wouldn't it be possible for you it seems like it could be just as possible for you as anybody and that kind of encouragement toward to to allow themselves to imagine it. And then of course, to have the intense compassion and kindness. Like, I don't think that I ever really realized how important kindness is. Mm. Um, and, you know, this gets back a little bit to what you were saying about therapy, right? It's a very affirming kind of, mm. um, kind of practice. And really just, even when I'm challenging someone and saying, is that true? How do you know? What's the impact? What is it doing for you in a way that may not be comfortable for them? It's always with, um, with an attitude of kindness and towards, you know, really this kind of like, I want this person to succeed. I want them to live the life that they know they're capable of. I want them to reimagine themselves in the world and to transform and, um, and to, encourage them and tell them that they can do it and that I know it's hard and I know it's scary and I know it takes a lot of work, but to encourage them to have the persistence, to have the courage, to have the tenacity, to believe in things that they don't currently believe in and to imagine a life that they don't currently live. Mm. You know, what beautiful, what a beautiful, it sounds like such beautiful and fulfilling rewarding work. Mm. And I think that I feel encouraged talking to you that I feel like I've clarified a lot of why it is that I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And I hope that I can have those experiences of being encouraging and being helpful. And um, I just love the experience of dialogue. I love the experience of good faith conversation. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Same. And um, I appreciate your inspiration and sharing with me what your work is. And I think that it has helped me clarify what it is that I mean when I say philosophical coaching mm -hmm. and what I think my particular blend of it is my particular mm -hmm. flavor, my particular niche. I think I've, uh, it's helped clarify. And it's also been very validating to be in conversation with you. Um, cause I think that I have a natural propensity at this. And I think that I have a ability to, um, I think I can do this. Mm. Well, that's, that's a necessary condition, I think for, yeah. for doing it. Yeah, that's that's something I see my clients all the time. It's not a sufficient condition, right? There are other things that need to happen, but it certainly is a necessary one. You have to believe in your capacity to do it or it's not going to happen. Mm. So I wish you the best of luck in starting your own practice. I think um, I, I agree. I think that, that you'll serve people well. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank I you. hope you have a great day. You too.
Okay, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Like I said in the intro, if you would like to explore a philosophical coaching call with myself, please email me at airyintheair at gmail.com. I also have in the link below or in the description below, I have Danielle's um, scheduling link. So if you'd like to jump on a call with her, she's an amazing coach herself. She gifted me a session with her before we did this recording, which is why we had such a nice rapport through this conversation. And I couldn't recommend her more highly. She's a great coach and her call with me was very helpful and I appreciated it so much. So, um, yeah, I think we both believe in the therapeutic power of dialogue, of philosophy, of connection, of empathic listening. Those are all things that we share a deep passion for. And so if you'd like to jump on a call with either of us, you can find those links in the description below. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.